This is a Federal News Network podcast. Two veterans service organizations have sued the Navy over discharge upgrades. At issue are other than honorable discharges, how they limit lifetime VA benefits, and whether service members can appeal them. The particular case involves a Marine whom attorneys say faced racial discrimination. Here with more on the case, an attorney with the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center, Alden Pinkham. Ms. Pinkham, good to have you on. Nice to speak with you. Well, tell us about this case. A particular Marine was discharged less than honorably for, it sounds like, a variety of causes that the Navy stated. Tell us more about it. Sure. So Mr. Lomax, my client, is a Marine who joined in 1982. He was 17 years old, joined up to serve his country. And almost from the beginning, he began to experience racial discrimination in service. So right from boot camp, he was called racially pejorative names. A fellow service member told him at one point that he had been raised to believe that Black people had tails and not to associate with them. This continued throughout his time in service. And even though Mr. Lomax tried to serve to the best of his ability, he found that wasn't truly possible because conduct that he engaged in, which was approved when white Marines did it, was punished when he did the same thing. Mr. Lomax also did not just experience racial bias in the service. He is a survivor of military sexual trauma as well. So those two patterns together compounded and had deleterious impact on his mental health while in service. And how long did he serve? You say he joined more than 40 years ago. He joined up at 17. He served for two and a half years before he was discharged with an other than honorable. And he has spent his entire life without access to VA benefits. Interesting. So is this a class action suit or is this kind of a bellwether suit? And how did he come to get together with your group at this point? Because that's a long time to be struggling with this. Mr. Lomax came to my organization, the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center, for assistance with his discharge. So Connecticut Veterans Legal Center is a medical legal partnership with the VA. That means we have offices inside the VA when veterans are coming to meet with their clinicians, to get their healthcare, to talk to the homeless team. They can also come and see their lawyer. However, there's a class of veterans, as you know, who don't have that access to the VA, those with less than honorable discharges. And so we work with those veterans to help establish access to the VA. That can be through representing them within the VA or through helping them get a discharge upgrade, which was the case for Mr. Lomax. And do they get zero benefits or is there a range of benefits depending on the nature of the discharge? How does that all work? It's a complicated system. So a person, as you might know, who has an honorable discharge is eligible for all VA benefits. You may have specific eligibility criteria for specific benefits, but your discharge enables you to reach those. Someone who has a general under honorable conditions discharge, which is the next category down from a fully honorable, has access to nearly all benefits, but not education benefits. When you get into an other than honorable discharge, such as the one Mr. Lomax has, the VA considers you presumptively not eligible for benefits. In the eyes of VA, you are not even a veteran. Got it. So some other than honorable discharged people can get not VBA benefits, but VHA benefits. In some circumstances, yes. So a veteran such as Mr. Lomax, who experienced military sexual trauma, is eligible for 
mental and behavioral health care related to the military sexual trauma. So he does get some sliver of benefits to that particular issue. A sliver of benefits. But in our experience, and this could be a whole other conversation, sometimes VA staff don't realize that that carve out exists for certain categories of veterans, those with military sexual trauma or combat. And we do see veterans with other than honorable discharges who qualify for that health care under the law is called the Honor Our Commitment Act. They qualify for care under that act, but unfortunately, they're given bad information at the VA and are told you're not eligible. Interesting. We're speaking with Alden Pinkham. She's an attorney with the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. And just briefly, what has Mr. Lomax been doing all of these years? He must have had a career or some type of work while he's been pursuing this uh, veterans deal. Yes. So Mr. Lomax, after discharge, he got a job as a truck driver. He raised his family. He has two daughters who are now grown. He tended to his wife through what eventually became terminal illness. And then after her passing, he made it his mission to help provide a stable background for his daughters as they were going through finishing high school, going through college to make sure that they had everything that they needed. So he is maintained, despite all of this, steady employment. He is still working. He has knee and leg problems that impact his work that stem all the way back to his time in the Marines. But again, he's received no help from the VA or treatment from the VA for those issues. So tell us more then about the appeal process. And does that appear to be fair? I mean, what's going on here when he tried to change his discharge status? Yes. So we assisted him in filing a discharge upgrade application based on the military sexual trauma he experienced and the racial treatment that he experienced in service. So we asked for the Board of Corrections for Naval Records, which is the body that hears discharge upgrade applications from the Marine Corps for older veterans like Mr. Lomax to upgrade his discharge to honorable based on his diagnosed PTSD, which stems back to the treatment that he had in service. And the board declined to do that. The board centered on some misconduct in Mr. Lomax's record. And, you know, I won't hesitate to say that people who are experiencing a mental health condition while in service will generally have some misconduct in their record. It's very common that someone who is struggling with mental illness is not able to perform all the way up to the expectations of service. So the board declined to upgrade. They focused on the misconduct in service, said his PTSD doesn't excuse this misconduct. But also importantly, they refused to engage whatsoever with the information we provided about racial discrimination in service. And we've seen this as a consistent pattern with the boards that when veterans of color bring applications that are based on potential discrimination and service, the boards won't engage. They won't grant those upgrades. And is there evidence that perhaps white service members with similar PTSD and similar behavioral issues or conduct issues have been exonerated in similar circumstances? Any veteran who has a discharge upgrade application based on PTSD or a related mental health condition benefits from some guidance for the boards, specifically a 2014 memo that instructs the boards to provide liberal consideration for PTSD claims and a 2017 memo that specifies, hey, PTSD symptoms can mitigate misconduct and this should be looked at. 
So overall, for all veterans, the grant rate for applications based on PTSD is slightly higher than the baseline grant rate. But interestingly, a study in 2022 done by the Legal Aid Society of Columbus that looked at 10 years worth of data from the discharge upgrade boards found that the grant rate for racial trauma claims is not only lower than the PTSD grant rate, it is lower than the baseline grant rate. So you are less likely to get an upgrade if your claim is based on racial trauma than for any other reason. And in the 10-year period covered by that study, the grant rate for the Board of Corrections for Naval Records was zero. Got it. So in this particular case, is this a single suit? Do you plan to turn it into a class action at this point? At this time, this is a single suit. So my hope is that, so while class actions can cause agencies to really look at their policies and procedures and find methods for change, single suits can do that as well. So our hope is that the single suit will get a good result quickly for Mr. Lomax and also prompt the board to consider their policies. And what are you specifically seeking besides the change in the status of his discharge? Would that say back benefits or back pay of some manner? The discharge at this point would enable Mr. Lomax to get all the VA benefits and also state benefits within the state of Connecticut that he would like, and would also just return his sense of dignity. Like This is a man who signed up, he volunteered at 17 to serve his country and was treated horribly. And he served well in his service. At one point, he gave up his own leave time to assist in the burial ceremonies for victims of the Lebanon barracks bombing. So he deserves an honorable discharge. So we're hoping to enable Mr. Lomax to say, I'm an honorably discharged veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. And just to clarify, this is an issue between Mr. Lomax and the Navy and not between him and Veterans Affairs. That's right. So a veteran in Mr. Lomax's position has two ways to try to obtain VA benefits. One is through the discharge upgrade, which he tried and was denied. And the other is to go through a process at VA called a character of discharge review. And fortunately for Mr. Lomax, we represented him in his character of discharge review at VA with essentially the same arguments that we presented to the Navy. And the VA determined he's honorable for VA purposes and thus eligible for benefits except for education benefits under the GI Bill. Alden Pinkham is an attorney with the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? 
So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? 
Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.